0: See you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, if you're new, if we haven't met yet, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who most Sundays gets to open up and unpack God's word for us. Um, I'm excited. Hope you are too. Uh, if you uh, have been around for even just a few weeks, maybe you're aware that we're moving our way into the book of Colossians. If you're new, you've come at a really good time. This is week two of a new sermon series. Just came out of the book of Luke for... The remainder of these fall months leading up to the Advent season, we're going to camp out in the book of Colossians. Um, I mentioned that with the book of Luke uh, last week that... We ended with the ascension of Jesus uh, to the right hand of the Father, the the exaltation of Jesus Christ, uh, his ascension, his session, Colossians bringing us face to face with the preeminence of the risen and ascended king. So it's a good segue, not as good as Luke into Acts, that's meant to be the sequel, same author, uh, but we've already worked through the book of Acts and so we're going to go with second best option and it's all the Bible so it's all great no matter what anyway, right? This letter of the Apostle Paul providing us with ample opportunity to see something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We saw it last week. We'll see it again this morning and on into the weeks to come. This letter written to the church at Colossae, a body of believers likely established as we talked about last week on Paul's third missionary journey, Not by the Apostle Paul himself, but a man named Epaphras, chapter 1, verse 7, a man who had traveled to Ephesus during uh, Paul's time there and had been converted under Paul's preaching of the gospel, only then to zealously take the good news back to his hometown of Colossae, Epaphras, uh, having now returned to the Apostle Paul, the context of this letter, during Paul's Roman imprisonment with word that the Colossian church was being threatened by a dangerous teaching or or teachings, the specifics of of which we'll get into as we continue to work our way through the letter itself. Paul's letter to the Colossian church meant to encourage them, similar to the book of Hebrews, to stay the course, to not drift. In bringing before them, Paul does the glory of the risen, ascended, exalted, preeminent Jesus. I shared this quote from the ESV study Bible last week As one of the the most thoroughly Christ centered books in the Bible, Colossians finds its essential unity in the divine and exalted person of the preeminent Christ. The letter presents variations on this central theme, with Christ celebrated as the object of the believer's faith, the image of the invisible God, the creator of all domains. The head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the unifier and reconciler of all things, the Savior through his sufferings on the cross, the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge, the triumphant victor over sin and Satan, the exalted Lord of life and glory, and the true pattern for the life of Christian faith. That's the book of Colossians the exalted and preeminent Jesus, the ruling and reigning high king of heaven, seated above all authority and power and dominion. Paul means for us to see the the true Christ, to behold the, the preeminent king and Lord over all. But more than that, Paul exhorts us in our beholding, as he talks about elsewhere in his writings, to turn from practices which betray our Christological creed and confession and to live lives that are consistent with what we understand, believe, and profess Jesus to be, not only individualistically, but communally and evangelistically. And so it's with that said that I invite you to open up your Bible this morning to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 9 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles, utilize it during our time together. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that with you as you leave this place this morning. Passage will also be up on the screen behind me as we work our way through it. Let me me go and pray for us and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great book of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, both timeless and timely, giving us more than a glimpse of the preeminence, the glory, the goodness, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ I pray that you would help us to see something of that goodness, glory, and grace this morning as we sit with your word in front of us, one of the many means of grace that are ours for the taking as we gather on this thing we call the Lord's Day. I pray and trust and know that it will not be for naught because you promised that your word will not return void. I trust by your spirit that you will move in power during our time together. I ask you for that. I plead with you for that. Spirit of God, move change us, transform us, that our beholding of, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would be transformative, that we would walk away with a knowledge that works itself out in obedience to Jesus Christ, our worthy Savior and King. It's in his name I pray, amen. So as we pick up this morning's passage, many of you know this who were here last week, but a little bit of a previously on Colossians. Just to help us out a bit. Paul has just expressed to the, the church in Colossae that his prayers for them are always filled with gratitude. Having heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Gratitude which, as we talked about last week, direct, Paul directs not to the Colossians but to God himself. As Paul understands that, that these things for which he's grateful are ultimately owing to God. Blessings from the Father poured out on his beloved children. Verse 3. The strength and grace to trust in Jesus, to love his beloved, his people. The work of the Spirit, verse 8, in the hearts of the saints. Faith and love, as Paul declares in verse 5, motivated by hope. Ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because, verse 5, of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Love abounding for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven not the hope that we feel inside of us, as Paul's not speaking of the feeling of hope in our hearts, though the Bible does in places speak of hope that way, but rather, in this instance, the hope laid up for you in heaven, the the things hoped for, the actual joys that await, that by the grace and strength that God supplies, we're to be heavenly-minded, the hope laid up for us in heaven, the fountain from which faith and love flow. The gospel, not only the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but to the good news of the real, objective, future promises of God that await we, the children of God. The Colossians having heard and received that good news, Paul says, from Epaphras, along with so many others in the days of the early church the time of Paul's writing to the Colossian church, and he alludes to this in those earliest verses, the gospel having spread from Jerusalem into Asia Minor, Italy, and Greece, likely even into Persia, Egypt, and North Africa, spreading like wildfire. Paul's words affirming that Epaphras didn't bring to the Colossians a false or or incomplete gospel, but rather the same gospel having increased throughout the known world that they might be confident in the message that they had heard, as opposed to those seeking to mislead them. The good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, verse 6, which Paul will spend the remainder of this letter seeking to unpack in its fullness, never to be abandoned, this grace of God in truth, no matter what the competing voices may whisper with their hollow words, with their empty promises. And so if you pick up in verse 9 of chapter 1, Continuing on this this sequence of logic, Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul begins this part of the letter with the words, and so, or for this reason, connecting Uh, These words to those having preceded them in those first eight verses. Meaning that that Paul's prayer in this morning's passage for the Colossians to remain faithful, it's predicated on the gospel having already taken root in their lives, in their hearts. Having heard of their faith and love, now praying that they might experience these things in increased measure. Unceasing prayers of intercession, mind you, consider this, by a man bound by the Roman chains of house arrest. And he's not looking at the the benefit and blessing, the circumstances of others around him with, with jealousy of heart. Which is not always the case for we Christians as we look across the aisle at other expressions of the church, even in our own communities. Now Paul's able to see beyond his own experiences in gratitude for what God is doing in the lives of the Colossians. He's happy about it. Yes, he ends the letter with a request that they remember his chains, chapter 4, verse 18, yet too committed in the midst of his own sufferings to praying for their continued good, asking that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God's will, not so much here meaning some particular direction for a person's life, which is how we more often than not tend to think of that language of of God's will, but rather a, a deep and lasting understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is and the fullness of his creative and redemptive work and the implications for our very lives. Paul will go on to say, In chapter two, verses two and three, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance. Here's the language of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Many scholars believe that that the competing voices in Colossae were were promising a, a spiritual fullness one that the Colossians couldn't possibly experience through the teaching Epaphras had brought to them. And yet Paul understands that, that in Christ, we have all of the wisdom we could ever need. We have all of the knowledge we could ever need. We have all of the power we could ever need, which is why Paul uses the language. Notice this in your Bibles. He says, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse nine, fully Pleasing to him, verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work, verse 10. Being strengthened with all power, verse 11. For all endurance and patience, verse 11. Paul understands that in Christ we have everything we need, which helps to to explain why Paul will go on to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ both at the end of this morning's passage and on into the remainder of this letter. Oh, that you may be filled with the fullness of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you might know a deep and lasting understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is, the fullness of his creative and redemptive work, his lordship in creation and redemption. And again, with the lordship of Christ, the implications for our lives as those redeemed by his blood, rescued into his kingdom. A knowledge which, for the Apostle Paul, is no mere intellectual exercise. We're not talking about some ivory tower theologian sort of mindset where we become become these bobbleheads, so to speak. But a knowledge Paul understands it to be consisting of spirit-imparted wisdom and understanding which works itself out in Christ-honoring obedience. Verse 10. Oh, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as, here's the outworking, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Right, It's an indication that we're not talking about some mystical insight reserved for the select few in the church. After all, Paul's prayer is not that, that some of us might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, while the rest of us who are not privy to that that insight, are forced to walk in a manner unworthy to the Lord. No, Paul wants each and every believer to walk in a manner worthy of of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Going back to last week, Paul is incredibly thankful for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints, and yet he's not content that they remain where they are. Paul doesn't see Christianity As a collective of stagnant characters or static characters, but rather we're dynamic, we're growing. As Paul will go on to say, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, past tense, walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's, it's past and present. Paul expresses gratitude for the, the evidences of a saving relationship with Jesus while petitioning the Lord for a deeper and fuller expression of those things in their lives. Oh, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, your life fully pleasing to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I would ask, I would ask myself, along with each and every person here, is that what we truly want for our lives? Is that our mission statement? Our chief aim above all aims? that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. For those of us who would say yes, Paul goes on to give a further expression of the, the kind of Christ-honoring life for which he hopes and, and prays for God's redeemed. If you move into the second half of verse 10, he says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As we saw back in verse six, that that language bearing fruit and increasing, hearkening back to the story of creation in the garden, Genesis 1:28, and the command given to our first parents to be fruitful and multiply. Paul describing here to the Colossian church God's work of new creation. That, that Genesis 1 language and imagery, back in verse six, describing the fruit-bearing spread of the gospel throughout the known world, the good news of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, that imagery and language here in verse 10 used a little bit differently to describe the fruitfulness and increase the, the bloom, you might say, of the gospel at work in us and through us to God's work of new creation. Which is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. And with the new, be encouraged by this. A God-given capacity to experience a kind of increase in the knowledge of God which works itself out in the yielding of the fruit of good works. So that here again we see the relationship between faith and practice, knowledge and content, belief and behavior, trusting and obeying. The root of every system of belief producing recognizable fruit of some sort. So, the Apostle Paul, I would argue, would find two things to be foreign to the Christian experience, both of which have found their varying expressions throughout the course of church history. For one, uh, an increase of knowledge without the fruit of obedience, forever learning about God without ever truly living for God. Paul would find that to be foreign. The other being a life of good works divorced from a true knowledge of God. Religious activity without its roots in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both to which the Apostle Paul would wholeheartedly declare as he does to the church in Rome, Romans chapter six, by no means. Paul longs for believers to experience a kind of increase in the knowledge of God which works itself out in the yielding of the fruit of of obedience and increasing knowledge in the goodness, glory, and grace of God in Jesus Christ, fanning into flame, spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience. So it is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. To which some might say, and rightly so, who is sufficient for these things? And the appropriate response to a question like that would be, absolutely none of us in our own strength. Which is why what Paul goes on to say is so incredibly encouraging. In verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. The fullness of God's power according to his glorious might. Do you feel the weight of those words? I mean, Paul here acknowledging our deep need And desperate dependence upon the Lord. Just as he had in expressing gratitude, not to the Colossians, but to God himself. Again, verse 3. Having heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Again, blessings flowing from the Father poured out upon his beloved children. The strength and grace to trust in Jesus. To love his beloved. The work of the Spirit in the hearts of the saints. Verse 8. Here declaring that we need a strength that only God can supply. Paul uses this kind of language elsewhere in his writings. A couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. Paul says there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory. Here it is. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Or as Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things, How?" Through him who strengthens me. A power that must come from the Lord, a power that God must supply. Coming back to this morning's passage, Paul acknowledging our dependence upon God to supply this power through that passive language of being strengthened. We're the recipients here. To what end? For what purpose? Paul tells us the answer to that question for patience and endurance, the strength to stay the course, to run the race, to keep the faith, the power for all endurance, Paul says, that is endurance of every kind in every circumstance, the power for all patience, that is patience of every kind for every circumstance. No night of the soul too dark, no no wave of circumstance too big, no matter what we bring into this place this morning. This is a God who supplies his people with the strength of his power that they might faithfully journey onward to the celestial city. Few people, I would argue, think in those terms when it comes to identifying the power of God at work in the church. What does it look like for God to move in in power? We have our notions, our ideas of these things. Paul tells us one, one expression of what it looks like for God to move in power in the church is his people staying the course, his people continuing to run the race, continuing to keep the faith. That when you see that, consider this, you're seeing the fullness of God's power according to his glorious might. How do we know that we have something of the knowledge for which Paul prays, going back to verses nine and 10? By evidence of the fruit of everyday obedience. How do we know that we have something of the power for which Paul prays? By evidence of our staying the course. So that I would ask, do you have evidence of Christ honoring obedience in your life? If so, you know something of the knowledge for which Paul prays. Are you still following Jesus this day? If so, you know something of the power for which Paul prays. Knowledge expressed in obedience, power expressed in perseverance. This should fan into flame joyful gratitude in our hearts. That's why Paul would go on to say at the end of verse 11 and on into verse 12, with joy giving thanks to the Father. Two, part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Verse 10, most scholars believing that the phrase with joy is connected to those words that follow it, uh, not those that precede it. Not to say that we're not to patiently endure with with joy. The scriptures surely teach that as well. Jesus himself, the book of Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross setting the pattern for believers who, for the joy that is set for uh, before us, the hope laid up for us in heaven. Verse 5, enduring the sufferings and sorrows of this life. Yes and amen to that. However, again, most scholars believe that Paul has in mind here the joy that comes in giving thanks to the Father, the one, as Paul goes on to say, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My goodness. That could be a sermon series in and of itself. What I just read. The language of sharing in the inheritance, hearkening back to the allotment of the land of Canaan in the wake of the exodus The language of deliverance and redemption, too, hearkening back to that same story of God graciously and powerfully setting his people free from the darkened domain of Egyptian bondage. Paul here declaring the the new exodus through Jesus, the greater Moses, having come to free his people, not from Egypt, but the far greater shackles of Satan, sin, and death. That in Christ, we who would otherwise be unfit for the kingdom have been qualified, verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. As Paul says elsewhere, Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Which Paul says in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, qualified for the inheritance of the saints. In addition, in Christ, we who would otherwise be bound to Satan's kingdom of darkness, verse 13, have been delivered transferred to the, the kingdom of light and life as Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 8 for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord or perhaps a more famous passage 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 9 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies here it is of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light out of one kingdom and into another in addition in christ we who would otherwise be in bondage verse 14 have been redeemed liberated from enslavement to sin by jesus christ as paul says in romans chapter 3 verse 24 for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Here it is, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or how about Titus 2.14? Jesus Christ gave himself for us, why? To redeem us, to set us free from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Set free from the shackles of Satan, sin, and death. The word redeem meaning to loose. But more than that, the word redeem meaning to buy back that which was previously forfeited. So that the concept of redemption, it doesn't just carry with it the idea of deliverance, but deliverance at a price. Something that's captured beautifully in the story of Hosea, story of a prophet called by God to marry an adulterous woman who runs away to be with another man, eventually ending up a slave. Many believing because her lover died and she was out without provision. We know that slaves in Hosea's day were always sold naked so that you can just imagine the feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness and shame in this moment. This promiscuous woman stripped bare in the public marketplace, one man after another placing his bid. All the while, Hosea commanded by God to go down to the marketplace and buy back his wife. Not so that he could hurt her, enslave her, make her pay for her unfaithfulness in some other way, but so that he could show her his never-ending love, so that we could understand something of the gospel you just picture Hosea clothing his wife in the, in the midst of her nakedness and shame, walking her away from this crowd of vulgar crass onlookers and declaring his undying love for her. That, too, is redemption, just as much as the imagery of the Exodus. James Montgomery Boyce, in talking about this concept of redemption, He says, sold on the auction block of sin, the world bids for our bodies with fame, wealth, prestige, influence, and power. All the things that are the world's currency. But God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, into the marketplace to buy us at the cost of his blood. It's not just that we've been set free from the shackles of sin. So that we've been freed from those shackles at great cost. Motivated by the undying love of Jesus Christ for us. Forgiven our sins, verse 14. Our pardon secured by the blood of Christ. Which is why Paul would say elsewhere, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You have a multifaceted jewel right here in this morning's passage, and it doesn't include every facet of the gospel, just a few of them. Qualified, Paul says. Delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. Paul spins that jewel that we might give joyful thanks to the Father, having everything we need in Jesus Christ, both pardon and deliverance, forgiveness and freedom. And don't miss the, the beauty of the hope of the both and here. the forgiveness of sins and the liberation from the power of sin's dominion. As John Stott writes. The blessing of forgiveness has sometimes been devalued as though it were no more than the wiping of the slate clean. But it is always a power that holds people in thrall. So in Paul's teaching, forgiveness must include the breaking of that power. It is inconceivable, he says, that God should forgive the past and then send us back incapable of living a new life. Pardon without deliverance would be a mockery. And it is never so contemplated in the New Testament. We ought not to speak of mere forgiveness as though this were but an initial blessing of the gospel. The gospel is precisely, he says, the offer of freedom because of the forgiveness of our sins. That forgiveness flows from the cross where Christ not only canceled our debt, there's the pardon language, but also disarmed our enemy. There's the deliverance language. It's a both hand that Paul will himself go on to speak of in chapter two. We'll get into it just weeks from now. Very famous passage of scripture where Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Here it is, the language of pardon, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now here's the deliverance language, the liberation from the the power of sin's dominion. He disarmed, Paul says, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Both pardon and deliverance, forgiveness and freedom. Having been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to his glorious, gracious, and good kingdom. If we don't feel something of a joyful gratitude in hearing these things, we're, we're not truly grasping this knowledge that Paul speaks of. We can, we should, we, we must give thanks to the Father. Verse 12. The Christian life, as Paul understood it, it's a life saturated with joyful thanksgiving to God. I don't know about you, but I find it easy, almost effortless, to find things to complain about. That's not hard for me. It's very easy for me to fail to notice with a grateful heart all of the evidences of God's grace in my life, both common and saving. The greatest grace being the hope that's ours in Jesus Christ. Helen Keller, in her autobiography, this is a woman having, as many of you know, lost her sight and hearing at an, as an infant, very young age. Uh, she, she wrote in her autobiography, for three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks, number one, that he vouchsafed me knowledge of his works, his saving works, Two, deep thanks that he has set in my darkness, the lamp of faith. And three, deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to, a life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. Perhaps today is the day of salvation for someone in this gathering. The day to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. To know the the joy of receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. To know the joy of being qualified, to use the language of this morning's passage, delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. And for we who profess to know, love, and, and follow Jesus, my prayer for us is that we would never cease to acknowledge our deep need for the strength that God supplies With hearts full of joyful gratitude for all that he has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus Christ. It's a misconception that you have to wait till verse 15 to get to the glories of the preeminent Jesus. They're all over the pages of these first 14 verses. Just imagine what next Sunday is going to be like. It's going to be a fire hydrant of glory. But we don't have to wait till then to... Give joyful thanks to the Lord for all that he has done, he is doing, he will do for us in Christ. We can do that now. And we're going to do that now through our song, our collective expression of joyful thanks and acknowledgement of our deep need for the power that God supplies. Abandoning our self-reliance, our self-dependence acknowledging ourselves as little children in need of the blessings that only the Father can bestow upon us, one of those being the fullness of his power and his might to keep fighting the good fight of faith. We'll also have an opportunity to worship, to express joyful thanks through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of those elements, rather that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. For forgiveness. If you are a Christian, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations on either side of the stage. Uh, There's uh, cups on the back table there. There's a gluten-free station in the back corner there. Over the course of these next few songs, whenever you're ready to receive of those elements, you're welcome to do so. We want to give some space for you to meet with the Lord over the course of the remainder of this service. But whenever you are ready to receive of those elements just consider as you prepare to receive of the bread and the cup the language of this morning's passage particularly verses 12 through 14 qualified because his body was broken his blood was shed delivered because his body was broken his blood was shed transferred into a new kingdom because his body was broken his blood was shed redeemed, liberated because his body was broken, his blood was shed, forgiven, pardoned because his body was broken, his blood was shed. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings, that's C R O S S P O I N T E P T C dot